Good day, everyone. Hope you all spoilt your fathers today and looked after your dads, all that sort of thing. A few guilty faces looking at me. Anyway, there we go. Why not pray? Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the wonderful joy and privilege it is to meet together as your people here tonight. And we pray that uh, you might help us tonight. First of all, that you might help us to understand your word correctly. But more than that, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you might convict us of its truth and also convict us of where we need to change, what we need to trust in, uh, where necessary, where we need to repent in the light of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight's passage, uh, Mark chapter 8, is all about blindness. That's sort of the theme of the night, blindness. I, uh, I don't think I could even contemplate or understand what it would be like to be blind. I have perfect vision at least I did when I last went to the optometrist 20 years ago and I figure if I never go again they're not going to change the diagnosis so that's the way I work with doctors but anyway uh, but I don't need glasses to read or uh, to drive or anything like that Uh, but I may have shared with you before and it's rather appropriate on Father's Day I have a rare affliction of the eyes Uh, Victoria calls it domestic blindness and uh, what it is is I can sit in a room uh, watching a television in particular and if the television is on, I do not see dirty dishes and I don't see clothes spread out all over the place. And so Victoria will come home and say, didn't you see there was all that washing up to be done? And I'm not lying. I genuinely did not see it. It was not there because there was cricket on the television or football or whatever it was. It's a terrible affliction. It also affects my ability to find things around the house. Uh, what happens is I, I go and I, I'm sure I put my car keys over there, but I go there and they are not there. And then I say, I start making wild accusations. Someone has moved my car keys. Victoria says, no, they're just over on the the bench. And then I say, no, 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 someone has stolen my car keys. And eventually Victoria will get up and go over and pull out the car keys and there they are. So I'm blind in this way. Uh, The thing that struck me as we've been looking at Mark's gospel, and we've been looking at it for a while now, we're up to chapter 8, is this blindness of all the people, but not a physical blindness, a spiritual blindness of all the people in Mark's gospel and especially in Jesus's disciples and we've sort of been having having a bit of a laugh each week as you you know the disciples fail to understand sometimes you can sort of feel almost like you're standing in judgment over them a little bit but I think it's meant to be a little bit humorous how how they just don't seem to get it so often so if you just flick back a few chapters in your bible back to chapter four at the end of chapter four there's this great moment where Jesus calms a storm just with a word. He's just there and he says, be still. And this incredible storm is calmed. And uh, then the disciples are there, and it's on your outline at Mark chapter 4, verse 41. uh, And this is the disciples' response. It says, they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. And I think that question that comes out of the mouth of the disciples is the key question for Mark's gospel. Uh, it's the key question for us to ask as we're reading, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is this man? But now, four chapters later, we're up to chapter 8 now, still no one has worked it out. So we've just seen him doing these incredible things time after time. So, you know, he can make a paralyzed man walk. He can calm a storm with a word. He raises people from the dead. We've seen him feed thousands of people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. Uh, He even walks on water. But still, no one can see him 
for who he is. They see the miracles. No one denies he does the miracles. Even his enemies say, yes, you're doing the miracles. But no one is willing to sort of step out there and say, this is what that means for who you are, Jesus. So it's all there in front of their eyes, but they don't seem to be able to put two and two together. And it's like they've got this, this affliction of their eyes, you might call sort of Jesus blindness, their blindness to who he is. So as we come to chapter 8, and if you turn there now, I think we're meant to be thinking, why can't they see who Jesus is? That's sort of the question that's, that's going on for us here. And if they can't see it now, how are they ever going to see? They're the questions we're meant to have in our minds. So open up Mark chapter 8. Uh, And the first little story you'll see there starts in verse 1, and it's this incredible miracle. Uh, By this stage of Jesus' ministry, people are coming from far and wide to hear him teach and also to witness what he would do. And it says that there were 4,000 men with him at this time. That means there may have been a lot more people there, but they they only counted the number of men. Uh, Who knows how many women and children were there as well. And some of them, it says, have been following him for three days, but they didn't have any food with them. They're sort of out away from town. Uh, And so Jesus is worried if they don't have something to eat, they might collapse on the way home. They'll be weak from hunger and all of that. So Jesus gets his disciples and he says, I want you to sort of scratch together all the bread you can find from amongst the people here. And they come back and they say, we've got seven small loaves. So Jesus gives thanks to God and then he starts dishing it out. And as he dishes it out, they pass it around and everyone gets some. And then they find a few small fish and he does the same thing. And then verse 8, look at verse 8. It says, they ate and they were filled. Seven loaves, a couple of sardines, at least 4,000 people, and they ate and they were filled. These people didn't have to go to McDonald's on the way home like I do sometimes when I go out for dinner with people. They, they didn't just sort of get a... You know when you go to a fancy restaurant, have you ever noticed this? The more you pay for your meal, the bigger the plate... And the smaller the meal. Has anyone else noticed that? You go and you pay, you know, $40 or something, you know, and there's a slither of fish on a little bit of bread. That's not what it was like here. The, the miracle was not that Jesus worked out how to make the smallest possible portions to feed people. <laughs> no, they got all they could eat and more. And then look at verse 8 again. It says, Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. So Jesus starts with seven small loaves and a few small fish. And he fed 4,000 and then had seven basketfuls left over. This is an amazing miracle. But at this point, you might be thinking, well, hang on a second, haven't we got the facts wrong? And didn't we sort of think about this only a couple of weeks ago? Wasn't it 5,000 people and not 4,000 people? And wasn't it just five loaves and two fish, not seven loaves and a couple of fish? And you'd be sort of right. If you remember, we took a bit of a gap because we uh, did that series on greed and generosity. But if you remember, only a couple of chapters back, flick back, in fact, to chapter 6, we only looked at this a few weeks ago, uh, where Jesus fed 5,000, Bill, from verse 30 of chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and just two fish, and that time there were 12 basketfuls of pieces left over at the end of it. So Jesus had already done this. Once before, this wasn't a new miracle, and the disciples had seen it that first time, firsthand. But if you come back now to chapter 8, and if you look back at verse 4, what do the disciples say when Jesus says, I'm going to feed all these people? His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to fill these people? 
Haven't they just seen him do it with 5,000 people? Couldn't they guess what he was about to do? You're meant to read it and sort of have a bit of a laugh to yourself. That's why it's here like this. You're meant to sort of say, how could they be so blind? They still can't work it out. They can't see Jesus for who he is. Well, if we carry on a little bit further, Jesus and his disciples get into their boat and they cross over the lake. Remember, this is not like a little lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. They cross back over to the other side. And in verse 11, look there, it tells us that our old friends and Jesus' nemesis, the Pharisees, they come and they want to argue with Jesus again. Now, we know the Pharisees pretty well already, don't we? We've met them many times in Mark. They were the religious people. And we know they were the people who knew their Bibles, what we call the Old Testament, They knew their Bibles very, very well. And in their scriptures, there are lots of passages which talk about the Messiah, which talk about what will happen when God's Saviour will come to save God's people. So if anyone should know how to recognise the Messiah, it's these guys, the Pharisees. They would have known, sort of off by heart, passages like the one we read before from Isaiah 35. And I've printed a little bit on your outline. Look at it with me. They would have known this, where it said, He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongues of the mute will sing for joy. See, what has Jesus been doing for the last year all around them? What what have these men been seeing with their own eyes and hearing reported all the time? They've seen paralyzed people being healed they've seen the lame leaping with joy they've seen deaf people hearing mute people speaking they should know that Jesus is the Messiah that he's the promised savior and if anyone should know it it's these people the Pharisees but what do they do look at verse 11 the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him They want to test him. They want to trick him. They want more. They sort of want to say, we want to set the rules, Jesus. We're going to say, you must do this. You know, you must make the sun go dark or you must make this water here turn to wine or whatever it is. They wanted a sign on demand from Jesus. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who should know it all, but they are blind to who Jesus really is. So it's no wonder Jesus gets exasperated with them and refuses to give them what they want. Look at verse 12. It says, But sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus says, Bad luck. You should have recognized me already. In fact, you should have bowed down and worshipped me already. So I'm not going to do anything for you. And I love this moment. He's literally just come across the lake on the boat and the Pharisees have been waiting there to have an argument. They say about 12 words to him. He says, get lost, turns around, gets back on the boat and leaves them behind. I just love that. The the sinfulness in me loves the idea of doing that to the Pharisees. But anyway, that's what it says. It says he turns on his heel, he gets in a boat, And he crosses over to the other side of the lake again, which brings us to the next little incident, which is while they're on the boat, the disciples, and I hope you see the humor of this, turn to each other and say, oh, what are we going to eat? We've only got one loaf of bread. Do you see how dim that is? You know, it's like, 
gee, I wonder what Jesus might do with that one loaf of bread while we're anyway. But Jesus takes the chance for, of them. They're talking about the bread. So he takes the chance to give them a warning about the Pharisees. So look at verse 15. Then he commanded them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Now, what's this yeast he's talking about? I'm not much of a cook. I'm not much of a chef. I like cooking, but people don't necessarily like eating what I've cooked. So, uh, but a few years back, we were given a uh, bread maker. Anyone else got a bread maker at home? One of those machines that does what people have been doing with an oven for hundreds of years? You know, that, that sort of idea. Well, we were given a bread maker and we used it every day for about two weeks. And then it got put on this place high up on the shelves where to get it down took a really special effort and it got forgotten for years. But anyway, when we first started trying it, I would experiment with it. And can I tell you, if you, make, if you put all the ingredients in, but you don't put in a pinch of yeast, you do not make very nice bread. Because all that comes out is this rock-hard, black, floury thing that is not very nice. It sort of looks like a scone, but it doesn't taste like one, I can tell you. See, yeast is the most important ingredient because what happens with yeast is everything. You put lots more flour, lots more water in, but the ingredient that matters is the yeast. And you only put a tiny, tiny bit in and it's the key to whether your bread rises and is nice or doesn't rise and is awful. And I speak from personal experience. So the point is, if your yeast is bad, that little thing, if it's bad, everything else has gone to waste. What is then the yeast of the Pharisees? Well, people have come up with all sorts of things it could be, but I think it's pretty simple. It's their attitude to Jesus. That's what it is. It's their opposition to Jesus. It's their attitude to God. And that attitude, which is really just an attitude of unbelief. It's different to the dimness of the disciples. See, the disciples wanted to understand but couldn't understand yet. The Pharisees were different. The Pharisees didn't want to understand and no matter what Jesus did or said, they weren't going to believe. That's the attitude Jesus is warning against. I see this in people. I'm always talking to people about the gospel. I'm always wanting to share this news about Jesus with people. I'm often doing Christianity Explained with people and you see the different types of question askers there are. So there are the people who ask questions and genuinely want an answer. They're like, Phil, Phil, I just don't, I don't know how I can trust the Bible. And with that person, I will do anything for them. I will sit there and I will look at the Bible with them and I'll talk with them and I'll explain it. I'll give them a book. I'll read it with them. There are other people, though, who say, Phil, I don't know why if you can trust the Bible. And then you start telling them about that. And as soon as they think, You've got given them an answer. They go, yeah, but what about suffering? And then you say, all right, let's talk about suffering. And you start to answer that question. They go, yeah, but what about the pygmies? And that person is not asking questions out of a desire to know anything. They're asking just because I don't want to believe. And even if you answered every one of my questions, I'm not going to be satisfied. I'll come up with another one. I used to sit and answer the questions with that sort of person. Now I've become a bit more bold in my older age. And I say, when you really want answers, come and talk to me. When you really want answers and you're actually willing to listen, come and talk to me. But otherwise, I don't want to waste my time. I want to waste my time with the person who really is open 
to believing. That's not to say you shouldn't keep tell, talking to them about Jesus. But anyway, the point here is, Jesus says to the Pharisees on the one hand, I'm not interested in you. With the disciples, he's willing to give them every, anything. But he says here, this is the problem, you guys. You disciples, even a tiny pinch of that attitude of the Pharisees is enough to ruin the whole batch. Even a tiny pinch of that hardness of heart that I'm going to test God and I'll believe on my terms spoils the whole batch. And can I say, this is a real warning to us. It is a real warning to us because like the Pharisees, we can have that attitude to God. We can harden our hearts to God's word. We can refuse to see what it tells us plainly. Every week here at church and in Bible study and other places, we hear the Bible read, large slabs of it. Every week, someone gets up and explains it to us. We hear about Jesus over and over and over again. We have his word taught to us over and over and over again. We can be like the Pharisees and just let it rush us by. Just let it pass us by, wash over us. We can ignore it and never let it change our hearts. That sort of attitude, that hardness of heart, is like the bad yeast of the Pharisees. And it only needs a tiny pinch to ruin a Christian's faith, like bad yeast ruins the bread. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, be careful. You could fall into that trap. You could get infected with that spiritual cancer of the Pharisees. If you won't recognize Jesus, then you are in danger of hardening your heart to God and his word, just like those Pharisees. But in keeping with their fine track record, the disciples don't understand. They can't work it out. They think he's still having a go at them about the fact they forgot to bring the bread. So look at verse 16. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. I just love that part. They had 12 basketfuls left over before and they're going, Oh, Peter, were you on the roster? Were you meant to bring the bread on this trip? Or was it you, Matthew? Who was it? Someone, no, no one brought the bread. They're still worried about it. And so Jesus says to them, my paraphrase, what is your problem? Look at verse 17. He said to them, why are you discussing that you don't have any bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? Do you have eyes and not see? And do you have ears and not hear? And then he says to them, tell me again what you saw with your own eyes. Tell me about those two feeding miracles. And they can tell him everything about them. They remember all the facts. They even remember exactly how many baskets they collected at the end. They've got no problem seeing but their problem is understanding. They've seen the miracles, but they haven't understood them. They don't understand what those miracles say about who Jesus is and about what he can do for them and for the world. Jesus isn't worried about bread. He just wants them to recognize him and trust in him. He's worried about faith. See, the disciples aren't physically deaf and blind, but they are spiritually deaf and blind at this point. And we're left thinking, and I think you're meant to be asking this question at this point in Mark's Gospel, if they haven't got it yet, how are they ever going to get it? How will they ever see? And that brings us to the last part of our passage, this little part from verses 22 to 26 of Mark chapter 8, the healing of the blind man. 
Now, even apart from what's just happened, this is an incredible miracle. If you just read this little section, it's an amazing miracle. Some people bring a blind man to Jesus. They hope he might be able to do something for him. So he takes the man by the hand, and in like a couple of weeks ago, he spits in the man's eyes, which has got to be a little disconcerting. Uh, but I think the reason he does that is the man is blind, so he can't see Jesus doing stuff. So he wants the man to know, I'm doing something for you. It's sort of a tangible way of communicating to the man. So he spits in his eyes, uh, and then he lays his hands on him. And what happens? Immediately, the man can see. Is that what happens? Not quite, is it? It's what you expect to happen. Because every other time, not just in Mark's gospel, but in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel and John's gospel, every other time when Jesus says, I'm doing something, what happens? It happens straight away. But this time... What does the man say? Verse 24, he looked up and said, I see people, they look to me like trees walking. It's it's like it's half worked. So now Jesus touches the man's eyes again and this time his eyes were opened, his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. This time the man was totally healed. Now the obvious question is, why did it take Jesus two goes to get this one right that's the question was he running low on power you know and he needed a top up or something or was this guy more blind than some people are or or was blindness extra hard for Jesus to fix I don't think any of those answers is right you'll be surprised to know Uh, no Jesus did it that way like he did everything on purpose to make a point see when Jesus performed miracles He did them for lots of different reasons. And it gives us lots of those reasons in the Gospels. Sometimes it was purely out of compassion. He saw a problem and he fixed it. The feeding miracle at the start of our our passage, it says Jesus was driven by his compassion for them. That's why he did that miracle. He was worried about them, so he did the miracle. He could fix it, so he did. Sometimes and most often he did it to fulfill the Old Testament. The Old Testament had said, this is what the Messiah will do when he comes. So Jesus said, well, I'm going to do it. So there's two reasons Jesus does miracles. One is just out of compassion. Another is to fulfill prophecy, to show who he is. And I'm sure both of those reasons played a part in why he healed this man here. But even more than that, this miracle was designed to teach his disciples and us an important lesson. This, this miracle is sort of like Jesus' sermon illustration to beat all sermon illustrations. If I was you guys, I'd feel really cheesed off. These guys get Jesus healing a blind man. You get my bad jokes and a couple of PowerPoint slides once in a while. You know, they got this. See, Jesus is actually saying, all these things that have happened, I'm explaining to you something with this miracle. And given what's just happened, it's not hard to see what Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us. You're not physically blind, Jesus is saying to his disciples, but in many ways you are like this blind man. You're spiritually blind. You are blind to who Jesus is, like all of us were, and maybe for some of us still are here. Jesus' healing of the blind man shows the disciples what needs to happen if they are going to come to faith and understanding. Like the blind man, the disciples have eyes, but they fail to see. 
And like the blind man, they have to be made to see. But it won't happen on their own. See, the disciples don't need to concentrate more. They don't need to get smarter. They don't need to see more evidence. The ability to see, both physically and spiritually, is a gift of God. They need a miracle to happen. They need Jesus to touch their eyes, if you like, if they are to understand and have faith. See, spiritual blindness needs a spiritual cure. And why the two stages? Well, just flick on a bit further in your Bible to the very next passage from verse 27 of Mark 8. In the passage we'll look at next week, the disciples for the very first time will finally get who Jesus is. They will finally have their eyes opened. But what happens is that they say to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And then he says, yes, and I've got to suffer and die. And they say, that can't be right, Jesus. And you say, so this miracle is an illustration of what is going to happen with those disciples in next week's passage. They're going to have their eyes open. They're going to understand who Jesus is, but they will see him like a tree walking around. They won't see it clearly. They won't have the full picture until much later on. See, it's only after Jesus dies and then rises from the dead that the disciples, like the blind man, see everything clearly. It's only after he sends his Holy Spirit into them that they really have their eyes opened so that they can understand. Well, what does all this mean for us? I've got two points to finish. The first is it should encourage us to be humble. Do not think that you have grasped the gospel because you are smarter than other people or you are more godly than other people or you are whatever than other people. This has to encourage us to be humble. We are just like the disciples. Left to our own devices, we are helpless and we are blind in and of ourselves. We cannot understand Christ or what he has done for us. We can understand it intellectually, but we can't grasp it and trust in it. We are spiritually blind and our sinfulness clouds our vision so that we will never follow Jesus off our own bat. See, but our spiritual problem has been fixed by a spiritual cure. Jesus, if you are a Christian, Jesus has touched you and healed you through his Holy Spirit. He has opened your eyes so that you can see and understand who he is and so you can put your faith in him and trust in him for your salvation. So don't ever fall into that trap of being arrogant about your faith. There is nothing uglier than an arrogant Christian. We don't understand because we're smarter or whatever it is. We've got nothing to boast about. Jesus did it all. Not just back at the cross and in his resurrection. He did it all. He even gives us the faith to believe in him. As the Apostle Paul says, let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Second obvious conclusion I want to make is about our friends and family who don't know Jesus. Next Sunday is, I think, the biggest free hit for inviting a friend to hear the gospel in the whole Bible. In Mark 8, 27 to the end of chapter 8, it is just the most simple explanation of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Even I couldn't mess it up explaining it. 
It's that good a passage. It's such a great opportunity to invite friends and family to hear the gospel. And this is the thing we need to remember. We need to be intentional about sharing the gospel with our family and friends. We need to work intentionally to share Jesus with them. But as we do that, what this passage reminds us is the importance of prayer. See, people are spiritually blind, and so they need Jesus to open their eyes. Don't get so caught up in all that you do that you forget that it's God's work. It's Jesus who will open people's eyes and give them understanding. That's why we're having another week of prayer for the harvest this week, like our month back in May, prayer specifically for the lost, for people who don't know Jesus. So I want to say to you, which one are you coming to? Are you coming to Tuesday morning here or are you coming to Wednesday morning at Bexley North? Which one are you going to come and join in in praying for God to open people's eyes? I don't think there is a more important thing you could be doing. There is nothing more important than being here and joining with your brothers and sisters and praying for the lost. What could be so important as to stop us doing that? I don't know about you, but I have so many friends and family. Neither Victoria or I come from a Christian family, and we have so many friends and family members who are not Christian. But what hurts even more is most of them are not just not Christian, they're not even open to the gospel. You know what I mean? So as we bring it up, they shut it down. It's as quick as that. It's like, you know, you think there's a chance. No, it's gone. They've, They've closed it down. So we try and take every opportunity that comes to talk about the gospel, to talk about Jesus. We will go out of our way to turn the topic to the gospel. We will make connections you would not believe (laughs) to talk about Jesus and the gospel. We have given them books to read so they might consider the claims of Jesus. But so often I'm so busy doing that, I just forget to pray that God would open their eyes. I forget that at the heart of it, even though they come with their intellectual questions, at the heart of it, really their problem is not intellectual. It's spiritual. And even though they seem as hard as those Pharisees we read about before, God is able to open their eyes to see who Jesus is. Can I encourage you, work your guts out to find opportunities to talk about Jesus with your friends and family. Don't take a backward step. Put the relationship on the line to share the good news. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather have them not talk to you but have heard about Jesus than to have them talk to you but go to hell? Put the relationship on the line to talk to your friends and family about Jesus, to invite them to church, to invite them to do Christianity Explained. But don't forget as you do that that it is Jesus who must open their eyes. So don't ever forget to pray for your family and friends. Let's do that now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes so that we have come to know who Jesus is and what he's done for us and so that we have put our trust in him. So we pray, each one of us here, for all of our family and all of our friends who don't yet know Jesus. Give us the courage to take every opportunity that comes up to speak about Jesus. But more than that, please soften their hearts and open their eyes so that they might come and join us in knowing and trusting in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.